Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health. And our guest today is another colleague and friend who worked for the CCG when it was the PCT, um, colleague Dr. Michael Staunton. Michael, a very warm welcome to you today. Thank you, Andrew, and, uh, and good to meet you, Peter. Michael, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Because we're going to be talking about a, a really interesting topic, an insight into an early, a little-known condition, early dementia of a particular type called posterior cortical atrophy. But you yourself are a doctor. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career before we move on. Well, I've had a very varied um, career um, as a military physician, uh, working all over the world, including the United States, Germany, Africa, Asia, uh, Nepal, learnt the language whilst I was there. And I suppose that has encompassed both trauma, wars, public health, and an enormous amount of general practice. And perhaps surprisingly for most people, the areas where one needed to be really good were particularly obstetrics and pediatrics. So child health and also um, women, babies, that sort of area, because our population was much larger. We did have some older people, but um, in general, that was the population that we were looking after. And I know you've helped us. Thank you, Michael. So it would be fair to say that you've um, got a, a very broad range of medical experience over quite a number of years. Um, That's correct. Thank you. And I know you've helped us greatly in Somerset uh, with, with doctors on appraisal processes and things like that. But thinking about your broad medical experience, that prepared you for, for diagnosing and finding out many conditions, I would guess. Oh, absolutely. And um, however, the, the concentration really was on um, younger people generally and tropical medicine. And also, um, I was lead doctor on a number of expeditions. So really, it's really my experience was with young people, trauma, both psychological and physical and, uh, and the well-being of general populations. What a wealth of experience. So how is it that you've come on our show today to give us an insight into a little known condition, one of the early dementias that, that appears at, an, at a young age called posterior cortical atrophy? How is it that you're going to share that with us? Well, first of all, I want to share it with you because with all humility, I have to confess that I had little idea about it in spite of all that experience that you mentioned. And I guess there are probably quite a number of health professionals who also have little or no knowledge about this condition. The reason being that it's quite rare. Why it affected my life particularly was that my wife, who is a lot prettier than me and certainly a lot younger, um, has this condition. And it has changed our lives. It has changed her life. It has um, changed my life, the family, and everybody else, and people around us, and what we can do and what we cannot do. So, of course, 
for me, it's an extremely important condition which has had this major effect on all of these lives. And yet, it is one which I had no idea about before it hit me full in the face. And even then, I found it very difficult to accept. And I'd be really interested to hear how you made the diagnosis, how you came to terms with it, how you understood it. Having dealt with similar situations myself in the family, I think doctors are are generally pretty bad at diagnosing their own family and then feel hugely guilty when we don't spot things at an early stage. Fortunately, Peter, I don't suffer from that sort of guilt, (laughs) (laughs) mainly because at a very early um, stage of my career, I was told very firmly that you must never try and diagnose what's going on with your own family because (laughs) you're likely to get it wrong anyway. Um, So I, I didn't feel bad about that. However, I'm not going to admit I... to I'm not going to admit to my late diagnosis at this point. Maybe on another show. But um, Michael, so what happened? What did you notice? And what was going on? What were the early What were the early things that you noticed? And and what then happened? Well, I suppose perhaps the earliest thing, and of course you must appreciate this is in retrospect. This was not that I was making a diagnosis or suspecting something. I was bloody furious because Avril had been driving my car and bumped into something at the side. And I asked her about it, and she was a bit evasive. No, said something scraped or this or that. And I, but I was, I was quite annoyed. I didn't get over annoyed, but I was a little annoyed. And then um, things like um, she seemed to get lost driving back. And then she said to me in a very jocular fashion, you know, it was strange, I was stopped by a policeman because I'd gone round the roundabout three times. I said, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and so, and he had just said to her, you know, are you confused? No, and she said, oh, fine. And then she drove on and she was fine. And that, that was very early on. Um, the crunch came really when Avril had worked in, in Germany for many years and she did her postgraduate training as a, an obstetrician and gynecologist in Germany. And she, sorry, and she has written books, I believe, years ago. Well, I was about to say, and, and she's terribly well known. She's written a number of books, seven books on integrated medicine and obviously concentrating on um, obstetrics and gynecology. However, she'd been headhunted for a job, which seemed to me it, it coincided with Um, a time when I was thinking about stopping work anyway. So uh, this seemed to me wonderful because the position was at a a well-known clinic in the Black Forest area of Germany with skiing on the doorstep, walking in mountains, which of course I love, and a very interesting city, Freiburg, close by, and just on the borders near uh, France and Switzerland. So wonderful for shopping and all sorts of other activities. So I was delighted with this and uh, we got an apartment and got things set up. And I have to say the place was named, it's named Badenweiler and it has the old Roman baths. And and in fact, it was the favorite uh, recreational place for the SS during the Second World War. So you can imagine it was a pretty good, lovely place to be. And uh, so I was delighted with this setup. 
And indeed, they said to me, look, if you learn the language quite well, and I did speak a little German, then we could probably give you a part-time job. So I thought, well, this is, this is wonderful. We, uh, I came, it was just before Christmas. So I came back early to get the house ready for Christmas. And, um, and then Avril phoned me up and said, um, well, she was coming back a little early. So I said, well, okay. And, um, and on her way back, um, she got lost. She was driving back from Germany and she, um, she got the channel tunnel and she should have driven round the um, M23, M25 and come on to the A303 or the M3 going southwest to the southwest of England. Instead of which she found herself in central London and called me in great distress because she had no idea where she was. So... I, being a London boy, which you alluded to, and in that part north of the river, I, um, I, I asked her to describe where she was. And she could see the place, and it was called York Place. And I said, is there a railway station? Yes. Well, of course, it's King's Cross. So I knew exactly where she was. Unfortunately, um, one of my aunts lived not too far away. So, and she was in a great distress about this and so you were so, able to rescue somebody who had got lost and in distress and was yes. it at that point that you made the diagnosis or was no it i didn't ever or? make i andrew i was hopeless i didn't make the diagnosis at all right. and in fact when the diagnosis was made i didn't believe it right and so, something we often see in people with early dementia is that they don't recognize that there's a problem was that something that you experienced Oh, Avril didn't recognise. I, I think sometimes Avril doesn't recognise there's a problem now. Mm. So, how so, long was it? How long was it after that incident that you actually saw the doctor and were taken forwards towards a diagnosis? Because I would imagine you probably went and saw your GP in the first place. Um, well, if we run back uh, a little bit further, and perhaps that that it 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 may be of benefit for people to to see how things unfold. Um, five years earlier, um, I had suspected, I had suspected all sorts of things were wrong. Avril wasn't making sense and she wasn't getting on well with her work. And I tried to help her with that. And so initially, um, I did take her to see people who, uh, thought she had burnout and this we accepted. And so she took it easy for some time and then started taking positions and jobs which were really below her normal standards. So she said, well, you know, it's easier if I don't really operate. And so she stopped operating. She stopped doing certain things, but she could still drive around. She could still do things. She could still make a, a very good diagnosis. She, so she continued with this. Um, but all the time, things were getting just a little bit more difficult for her. So, but we didn't, I didn't put it together. I just accepted. I had my own things to do. So I accepted, well, if that's how she feels about it, that's burnout. That's what happens. And it may take some time before she gets over that. So I just accepted that as it was and for what it was. So 
really we were we were looking at things over a longer time. So I'd say it would have been evident at least five years or six years before the diagnosis, perhaps even earlier than that. And what you're saying there is very typical of people uh, who have d- dementia at an earlier age, that it will often take them many years before they can actually get the diagnosis. Absolutely. Um, there are some things, of course, which would would help in terms of thinking, well, are there any um, red flags? Or one of the things I would say that there's a, there's a lovely little book um, which is called the Queen's Square Test Book for Visual Deficits. And, um, and I would recommend that particularly to any doctors or opticians, optometrists or uh, ophthalmologists um, who are looking. So it's the Queen's Square Test Book for Visual Deficits, and we can refer to that later. And that would give um, some good, it's a good test for getting some early ideas. So if you, for instance, thought, well, somebody's, their memory seems to be fine, you know, uh, all sorts of other things seem to be fine, but um, you know you can't find what the problem is. Sometimes it would be a good idea, and I think for anybody in any, of, or they don't have to be doctors or any health professionals, but just to think about how the brain is made up. You know, the brain is in two identical halves. It's got four lobes. It's got the frontal lobes. And so if you just think about the frontal lobe being the bit which, you know, gives us our behavior, our emotional expressions, the problem solving and memory, language judgment, but um, and our sexual behaviors. So if you thought about that straight away, you might actually think, ah, if something in those areas is going wrong, maybe it's to do with the front of the brain. And then you've got, you know, the ones at the side there. So you've got two of those. You've got, as you know, the communication between them. And that's about temperature, taste, touch, movement. Um, and it's got an area called the primary sensory area. So that would tell people, how's it warm, cold, pain, touch? Now, if those are going wrong, again, it would tell you that it's something in that area. And then you've got the one, what's called the occipital, the one at the back. Now, this is the one we were talking about, posterior meaning behind or back, cortical meaning the brain, atrophy meaning it's wearing out, okay? So if we look at that, that is the one that is really primarily responsible for vision. So in this situation, The eye is perfect. The optic nerve is perfect. But the interpretation in that bit, which translates all of this nervous activity, this neuron activity, all of that is not being interpreted. So it would be a bit like um, if um, Vladimir Putin and... um, I don't know, Boris Johnson were having a conversation. However, the, um, the translation was completely wrong. 
then they could have a war or they could go have all sorts of problems. And this is exactly what's happening. So into the eye is coming the proper information. It's being processed in the proper way. It then gets to the translation bit and it goes wrong. So therefore the person now doesn't know. So this leads to all sorts of problems for the person. And that's why very early on, one of the things you might actually have to stop is the driving. Okay. How really interesting. And, and Michael, intelligent people, um, and sorry, everybody's got a level of intelligence, which is high, but, 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 but people who use their brains a huge amount for intellectual work can often be very heavily defended against insight into their own problems. Yes, you're absolutely right there, Andrew. The other side is that if they're socially very adept, so if they're well-mannered, they're interesting. Uh, they're interested in other people in conversation. Um, they know how to make conversation. Um, and if you like, they're good at a cocktail party. Not that we ever have cocktail parties anymore. But, you know, if that sort of situation, they're good conversationalists, they actually can hide these symptoms for a lot longer. Now, when I say hide, again, one of the misinterpretations that can go on here and could lead to divorce or God knows what is that you might think the person is lying. Well, actually, you think about it, we all compensate for things. You know, I say, oh, well, you know, it's what's his name? You know, Andrew, you know that chap, don't you? His, his name, what is it? Bag something, Shaw or something, I don't know. But, you know, you're, you're compensating. Well, actually, they're compensating. So they find, now, what I would say it's equivalent to for anybody particularly who speaks a foreign language, is that if I don't know how to say one thing in French, then I find another little way of saying it. Now, they're doing the same all the time. So in the early stages, you're not going to pick this up just on language necessarily. Oh, and the other thing which is vital is that when I uh, am one of the common, common errors is that I said it's at the back of the brain. That means it is not about memory. Their memories are intact. Their insight is intact. So even if they cannot speak properly, they actually have got those bits intact. So you can cause great offense. You can cause great problems. And I think it's really interesting that you've brought out that dementia is not a homogeneous disease that break, affects the whole brain equally. Uh, so a, a commoner form is frontal lobe atrophy, isn't it? And that affects behavior, as you were saying. And often people, again, won't have memory loss. They'll just behave in a different way. So we need to be alert to anyone who seems to be behaving out of the ordinary. I think that's absolutely correct, Peter. Uh, when somebody, you know, one of the things that, I mentioned mountaineering. One of the things which is very interesting to me and, and um, you see happening very quickly, when somebody gets exposure, you know, cold exposure in extremes, it can also happen in heat exposure, their behavior changes. So somebody who was mild-mannered, very reasonable, suddenly starts swearing and being very difficult. That's a good clue that something's going wrong. Now, if you think about it, oh, and that also happens when you've got oxygen deprivation or you're at altitude. Now, 
here we have the same sort of situations, if you like. The brain is being deprived, but in a specific area. So you were talking about the frontal lobe, that bit I said, which is all about uh, the neurodegeneration, the big atrophy, the bit that's going wrong. Um, now that is about their behavior, about their emotional expression, and about sexual behavior. So one of the things that I remember once a nurse complained, she said, oh, she had this dreadful old chap, he'd been an admiral or something, and he was trying to get to, into bed with all the other women in the care home. Well, actually, that in terms of a frontal, you were talking about, uh, well, it's frontotemporal, but a frontal lobe um, dementia actually is a normal behavior for them because that all of those inhibitions have been lost. So does that make sense to you, Peter? Absolutely. And, and that's really helpful, Michael. So we've got diagnosis and we've only got a few minutes left. This is so fascinating. Um, you might want to share briefly how the diagnosis was made and by whom, but I think it would be really useful, Michael, to, to hear from you what it's like living with it and what positive things that people can take and what positive aspects that where, where help is available. Okay. Now, just before we do that, what I'd like to say is there are a few red flags I'd like people to be aware Thank of. You. Now, if somebody's got repeated appointments with an eye specialist, be aware. If somebody's repeatedly changing the prescription for the glasses, whichever profession or area you're, be aware. If they have been diagnosed incorrectly with an ocular condition, with something going wrong with the eyes, and it might even include that they've been given cataract surgery. Okay, so really remember those things because, or it might be diagnosed as functional, you know, somebody's got something, they're going a bit bonkers. Actually, no, this has got to be looked at properly. Now, you're talking about what is it like? I think the first thing is, is to remember that this is part of generally of Alzheimer's. That has got stigma, it's got all sorts of things, and it's got all sorts of the wrong things, and it has wasted a lot of my time, my valuable time, because the sort of advice I was getting really was that, well, you know, things go wrong. So I was very anxious, very worried, thinking, oh, well, can I go out? You know, what am I gonna do? Um, what am I going to do about this? I've, I've got to make sure somebody's there. I've got Actually, in the early stages, that is not necessary. The person can still function quite well, can do sorts, all sorts of things for a long time. People could even still keep going to work because particularly if the memory's still intact and other areas... Now, things are going to go downhill. We know that. So they're writing and other things are going to stop. And in Avril's case, her writing now is dreadful. Um, she gets aphasia. That's to say she can't really express. She knows what she wants to say, but she can't say it. And that's a great frustration for her. She can't really use a mobile telephone. She can't work the television. So those sort of things are things you'll have to do. But that's a long way down the road. Remember, this is years. This this all happened when this was first made, this diagnosis more than six years ago. So we're, we're a long way down since then. And there are a lot more things I could have done. Now, fortunately, we have done things. We've gone to Kilimanjaro, as you know, We've been up Mount Tupkal. We've been up all sorts of mountains. I insist that she does all these things. I make her lead the training programs 
on the physical side. And the guy, Professor Nick Fox, if any of you want more information on that, um, he reckons the reason she's surviving so well actually is because of the active life that she's got. Now, the other tip I'd like to give you is if you want to pick up more things besides that book, go on to the site of Rare Dementia Support. It's UK. It's um, from University College London. It is brilliant. Uh, the people there, there's a guy named Professor Seb Crutch, absolutely fantastic. These people will give you more insight and more knowledge about this condition than anybody else. And by the way, for those who are the, you know, the science fiction aficionados, it's the condition that Terry Pratchett had. And if, I, if I can give a plug for one of our previous podcasts, you touched on living well with dementia. And if people want to listen to our, our podcast with Jennifer Butte, uh, she demonstrates how you can live well with dementia, at least in the early stages. And unlike you, she stresses the importance of physical activity and, and using both body and brain. And we know that actually physical activity is very good for health generally, very good for brain. And it is possibly the only evidence-based intervention that keeps you well as you age, there are a number of interventions, medications and others that help us live longer. But uh, Dr. Lucy Pollock, who was also recently interviewed on a, on one of our podcasts, was, was sharing with us how activity, and it doesn't have to be exercise in Lycra, just any activity uh, is good for us. And I have to say, Michael, I salute you and uh, Avril for being able to, to do mountain expeditions. I know you had a previous uh, expertise in doing that with disabled ex-servicemen. Um, and uh, that's that's been another of your projects. And it's fascinating to see how you've actually transferred that into helping your own family member, your own loved one. Oh, and the other thing I just say this, look, don't listen to people about what you can't do. It is about what you can do. And I have taken that attitude in everything in my life, actually. But regarding this, too, I take this attitude. Look, let's focus on what we can do. If you think about it, even with back problems, you can cure a back problem by getting people to do the exercises that don't hurt them. So I believe totally that the brain's just the same. Do the things you can do. Do them well. And don't be afraid of challenges. Of course, when things are too difficult, yes, you don't want to be doing them. But actually having a bit of fun, having a bit of interest, having a bit of laugh, and also getting rid of people's fear. Because one of the bad things, and I hate to tell you about the bad things, but is that so many people have dropped Avril from their lives because they're afraid. And that will happen to lots of people. But the upside of that is, look, make friends with some other people who want to be friends with you. Get on with doing what you can do, okay? Lovely. That's a very, very good message to help everybody who's listening because many of our listeners will have loved ones who, who have um, relatives with problems. Uh, and it's important to be positive. Let's accentuate that positive as, as well as the negative be aware of it be aware of red flags to look out for but a positive is what keeps us going forwards absolutely peter is there anything else you'd like to ask michael whilst he's with us i suppose i mean i, I don't want to pry into your personal situation but having been academic high flyers it must be very difficult transitioning into the role of being a carer and 
although you've tried to keep positive, some things are now limited. How, how do you how do you count with with that change, which a lot of us have to make for one reason or another? I think the first thing is that um, Avril's life is very dependent on my life, and that is what will happen. And the big danger one's aware of, of course, is codependency and all that goes with that. And that that is something which possibly or possibly has happened or will happen. However, by getting Avril to do the expeditions and the long walks and the the the, the fitness and um, and my dogs. Oh, the dogs are very important, by the way. I would say to anybody, if you can manage it have a dog too, at least one, because dogs, first of all, they're non-judgmental. <laughs> they're very, very friendly. I mean, who else is delighted to see you when you get up first in the morning? So dog animals really help. Um, and also, of course, uh, they can get you home all right, because they do know their way home, particularly at mealtimes. Um, and just having that very positive attitude. For me, yes, it has restricted my life. And I would be telling you lies if I didn't say I get really hacked off sometimes. I do. But I don't get over annoyed. And my secret for that is I say, what the hell would you expect if you've got a cognitive disorder? You know, I just walk away and I think, wait a minute. So you're getting cross because somebody's got a cognitive disorder. That's totally illogical, completely unreasonable. And that brings me back down to earth. So that's my little mantra. Um, but it is difficult. And um, we, do, we, do manage, we do manage it actually not too badly, though. Uh, I have one or two very good friends. Thank you very much indeed. Peter? I'd, I'd just like to... Uh remind people of something that you said, which I think is really important, which is that not all disabilities are visible and that we should be of to as tolerant to people who are struggling either with their mental health or with dementia or some other unseen disability as we would to somebody with an obvious physical disability. So you've, you've put that out there and I'd, I'd really like to endorse that and support that. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. Thank you, Peter. And Thank you, listeners. Thank you for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Go well. All the best. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.